Amen. Well, I want to welcome you guys, and it's real. It's it's an honor to have you here. It's a big deal to us that you consider bringing students here. It's a big deal that you consider coming to a conference like this. For a lot of you, I know it's your first time coming, and uh, so welcome. If you're that dude, that that lady, um, welcome. Uh, this is such a fast conference. I mean, it, it really. We know that uh, your schedule's crazy, and it's hard to get away for something like this. Some of you have a conference like allotment or budget or you got time that you can take. But some of you, you're bivocational, you're volunteers, you're working another job. So we try to keep it short, pack as much as we can into it. I want to I offer you this. We love to serve people in student ministry. And, uh, and we view our role to the local church uh, as a partnership. And, uh, and, and Rob mentioned when he came up earlier, Rob and I co-labor and pastor together at a church. It's about a five-year-old church plant here in the area. And so we, we do this from a very pastoral mindset. And a lot of times, uh, uh, parachurch ministries, I think, uh, there's, there's sometimes a, a, a lack of trust there. One of the things that I appreciate is, uh, the opportunity to partner with, with you as co-laborers. And, um, so as church planners and, and pastors, uh, we want to equip students and, and we have a, a real desire to see them discipled well. And whatever we can do to help student pastors do that, I, I'm, I'm, we've been doing this a long time. I am. It's none of your real, really none of your business how old I am, but it's, it, it's, it's, you know, there's some older people here, Brooks. Um, there's a couple. There's like two or three older people than me here, uh, and that's about it. But we've been doing this for a long time, and we're going to be doing it if Jesus will let us keep doing it. We're going to do this till. Um, Whatever your eschatological views are, we're going to do it till he comes back, or we die, or whatever. So, um, like this, this is where we're at. We we have uh, we have responded to the call that God's placed in our lives, and a big part of that is to to partner with churches. So we want to serve you. We want to serve you best we can, and not just your students, but we want to serve and equip adult leaders that are here. Small group leaders have come. Many of you, as student pastors, have brought a team of your leaders. Many of you are considering uh, coming to Snowbird uh, for a camp, a retreat, a conference like that. And I just want you to know that our heart and how and what, why we do ministry is to partner with and through the local church because we love the church. In an age where the church is under attack, uh, we love the church. And as pastors and leaders uh, in the local church. You're a big deal to us. So because this is such a short conference, um, one thing I want to make available to you uh, that, that we never really publicize this, and I think it's because I always forget to ask that we publicize it, but if, if you drove a long way and, and, and you've got Sunday free, we, we do this thing and end it on Saturday because a lot of you have to be back for Sunday. But we're starting at 9 o'clock on a Friday night. It's a crazy schedule. Uh, and, and, and you're planning on staying somewhere and driving back Sunday. You can stay here um, another night. There's no programming past tomorrow evening session. There's good local dining. and uh, So you're welcome to just crash here. Save yourself a hotel uh, bill. The other thing is uh, we would invite you, all of you are invited. If you want to bring your family and come have a free camp out at Snowbird, like we'll, we'll schedule that for you. Like if a family getaway, um, as just something that, that we want to offer to you. And if it's while we've got a retreat or conference going on and there's space available, you come join into that. That is something we, we've always made available from the beginning is people that are, that are laboring with us in ministry. You're like, man, I need to get out of town, take my wife and, and my, a lot of you are young student pastors and you've got two or three screaming toddlers. And it's like, 
uh, you, you want to take them somewhere where they can scream and holler and, and pull their pants down and urinate wherever they want to, you know, you're, 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 you're in that, you're in that stage of life. And, uh, this is a good place for that. And so, uh, I'll extend that to you. You come back anytime and we'll, you know, you guys see our accommodations are not Hilton esque, but, uh, uh, but you're welcome to come here and stay. We'll take care of you. We'll feed you. We'll take good care of you. Okay. So there's that. So turn to Colossians chapter one. We're going to be in Colossians one and two. Uh, looking at a passage of scripture and considering in our, in our focus verse for this conference or our focus passage that Rob read in Paul's letter to Timothy, um, there's a line in there, there's a word in there, and that word is teaching. And at the, at the heart and the core of what we do in student ministry, we better be faithful to handle the word of God as we're going to give an account for how we do that. And we need to understand our responsibility in doing that. And so, um, I want to go over to Colossians chapter one, and I want to consider the goal of disciple making in student ministry, the goal of disciple making in student ministry. Um, for a lot of us, uh, this is, this is a labor that, that we, maybe you're at a point in life where you're not seeing a lot of fruit that's visible. And for some of you, you're at a place in ministry where maybe you're seeing a lot of fruit. And I want to encourage you from God's word tonight that the goal that's set before us is not just to make converts and see people come to know Jesus and to proclaim the gospel evangelistically, but to move beyond that as pastors and shepherds and small group leaders and teachers, mentors, uh, and, and, and in terms of our teaching ministry, our relationship uh, building, that we're making disciples, we're cultivating relationships, understanding that the kid that's, uh, that, that you're ministering to as a 14-year-old is going to be very different. If they don't get discipled, they're going to be different three years from now. If they do get discipled, what that difference can mean in their life and then the impact that they can have in the world and the community around them. So we're going to consider um, disciple-making from one of the greatest um, examples we have of disciple making in history. And that's the apostle Paul. So this is the word of the Lord. Colossians chapter one, we'll begin in verse 28 and we'll read down to chapter two, verse eight says this, him, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, I told struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me for, I want to know for, I want you to know How great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Delude simply means to mislead. For though I am absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing t- to see you, uh, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, please give us insight and understanding into your word. You authored it by your own authority. Now, please help us to receive it by that same authority. Help us as we teach. Help us as we receive your word and shape us by it, that we'd be better leaders, better disciples ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the first thing I want to consider is the purpose of disciple making. As we talk about the goal of a person in student ministry, the goal of pastors, the goal of small group leaders, the goal uh, that, that is kind of set before each of us. Um, and this, there's a couple hundred people here. And uh, there are about uh, 40 people who are uh, part of Snowbird, like, like our staff. Um, about 25 in our leadership institute and about 15 to 20 full-time staff that are here tonight, and then about 120, 130 uh, visitors. So uh, if, if we would consider the goal of making disciples in student ministry, um, then I think the first thing that, that we would look at is the purpose of disciple-making, and it's laid out in the text, the purpose of disciple-making. So if you look in verse 28, he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he's telling us the, the goal, the task that he's taken in hand, the, the, the context of the letter of Colossians is that Paul has received word. Uh, Paul's all the time in prison. You know, the guy's always getting arrested. He's a troublemaker. So he's in jail again. He's received word. Paul's received word of some things that are happening in the church in Colossae. And one of the things that's happening is people being led astray by, um, by uh, like legalism. Some people are being led astray by uh, worldly teaching and, and, and poor doctrine. And this was common in Paul's letters. Keep in mind and keep in context, one of the things I think that we can compare in terms of the ministry we're doing to students and the ministry that Paul's doing in the first century is that these are typically converts from pagan religions or Judaism. Okay. So they come, but, but most of them don't come from an atheistic or agnostic worldview. They come from Judaism where there's a strong strain of legalism. So oftentimes in Paul's letters, for instance, the, the letter to the Galatians, you see this really confrontational approach to legalism. The idea that, uh, that the gospel is Jesus and his work plus something else in terms of man's faithfulness or man's ability to follow rules or regulations or something like that. So you see oftentimes legalistic Jewish ideology creeping into the church because remember Paul would go first to the Jew and then to the Greek Paul's model of ministry was to go into a city where the that through the dispersion that had occurred the Jewish uh, people were scattered abroad Paul would go into a city he would first as a rabbi preach in the synagogue and he would see Jewish converts come to faith. And from there, they would work to bring the gospel to that city, that region, and start the, the work of planting churches and training up elders and pastors and leaders and working to see the church spread and the gospel flourish. So he would come into a city and he would be dealing first with Jews. But then the Greeks or the, the Greeks or the Romans or the non-Jews that would come to know Jesus typically came from a very pagan background. Colossae was no different. And so what happens is... Pagan ideology would carry would would be carrying these people through life. They would convert to the Christian faith, and their their thinking would be warped. And there would need to be sort of a cleansing, a cleaning out of of worldview and theology. And so it was like, okay, we accept Jesus, uh, and and they immediately, in their zeal to be faithful to the Lord, would begin to worship Jesus in many of the same practices that they used to worship that pagan god. So you see, uh, probably the most literal and clear-cut examples of this would be when Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and we know that what they were doing is they were coming in to worship the Lord, and they were getting drunk uh, and when they were taking the Lord's Supper. There, there was an excessive amount of drinking, an excessive amount of eating. There was often in both Corinth and Ephesus things like temple prostitution, sexual acts that were seen as acts of worship to God because that's how they had worshipped their pagan God. So they would receive Christ. Then there needed to be an undoing of the worldly way of thinking in their mindset. 
and then a renewing that would take place literally over the course of their life. That's what discipleship is. You guys have all been frustrated. I guarantee you we've all been frustrated with a situation where we go to a, a student ministry event. Maybe you took some students there. It's a one-night event, and someone gets up there, and you feel like they manipulate your students into making a major decision by a real emotional uh, uh, invitation, and then they get on the bus and go home and leave you to deal with, okay, who really got it? Who was emotionally? You guys feel what I'm saying? Who was just drawn into the moment and the emotion of the moment? And, and so what Paul was very focused on doing in the churches where he ministered was making sure that discipleship began through the proclamation of the gospel and conversion, and then continued over the course of the lives of the church and then the generation that would follow. And that's how we have the church today. That's, that's what's happened is people have been faithful to make disciples. And we see this in the Great Commission when Jesus instructed us to make disciples. So we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We teach them to observe commandments. That's discipleship. So discipleship is at the core of what we do in student ministry and in church planting ministry, in street ministry, in foreign missions, and and anything that we do to advance the work or the cause of the gospel, discipleship is the task, the goal that's been set before us. We're not simply making converts and checking them at the door and leaving them on their own. The work begins when a person comes to know the Lord. I mean, think about this. It is actually not that difficult to simply proclaim the gospel mechanically. You can, you can speak the gospel, proclaim the gospel, say the gospel. But when a person receives the gospel, it is very difficult to then take that person by the hand and help them to then navigate life in this world. And we know that particularly this is difficult with teenagers today. Because we're in a time where the world is literally upside down, socially, morally, in, in every, in every uh, way, people are losing their collective minds in the society that these teenagers are growing up in. So as we do student ministry, the task of discipling students is the task of discipling them in much the same way where when a, when a student comes to know Jesus in our ministry, we're basically starting with someone who has, in a world religion been indoctrinated, ingrained, and taught from a secular worldview how to think, how to live, how to act, how to make moral decisions. You follow what I'm saying? Much the same way the people in Ephesus had been taught how to worship Diana or Artemis or or whatever pagan god or goddess they were worshiping. So we're dealing not just with a clean slate in terms of a new convert. We are dealing with, when a person comes to know the Lord, someone who has been made new. They are a new creation. Life in Christ has just began for them, but there is much much that has happened in their life leading up to that point in terms of images they've seen, conversations they've heard, life experiences they've had, uh, education that they've sat under, particularly if they go to public school. Oftentimes they've sat under a very anti-God, anti-church, anti-gospel worldview. And so there's a, there, there's a huge task set before us in discipling them. It's not just simply teaching them Bible stories. It's that they need a constantly and continually renewal, renewal of the mind. A, a constant renewing, renewing of the mind. A continual renewing of the mind. That's what's going to take place in and through our ministry. So, so when Paul then says that we're to present to Christ. So, so the purpose of disciple making is to present to Christ mature believers there in the second part of verse 28. He then in verse 
chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 explains to us what that mature believer will look like. Let's consider that. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, this is what a mature believer will look like. This gives us sort of an idea of what we're working and laboring towards. He says this in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Mature believers will be those who are encouraged continually. And think about this. A mature believer is a person who... Uh, we all had these experiences where you come under attack and and it tests you in the moment. Do you keep your cool? Do you lose your cool? Maybe you've lost your cool with a, with a spouse or a kid or in front of students or in front of a non-believer. And you go, man, I I really messed up there. My wife drives a, a lot of, you know, my wife, for those of you that are new, my wife is, uh, we call her little and she's the girl that's playing the drums. And we've married uh, 22 years and we're driving back from family vacation last week. She drives a, 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 20-year-old Ford excursion, 17-year-old Ford excursion with a, a, a big power stroke diesel motor in it. And we're, it's 100 degrees. We're coming up the interstate, and we pull in the gas station. And I put, I got to about 15 gallons of gas in it and realized I'm putting gas in this thing. And it's a diesel truck. And, I mean, only an idiot would do something like that. <laughs> like, you know, like, you're like that's, that's, that's like, that's dumb at a completely, like, imbecilial level, you know, like, like, so uh, yeah, I made that word up. So I, I'm, st- I'm, I'm thinking, I remember in that moment thinking, okay, and this is what we do as teachers. A lot of times think about this in the context of telling it as a sermon illustration <laughs> somewhere down the road and don't blow your stack in front of your kids. I got five kids, man. I don't blow my cool over something like this. And so we're constantly testing and, and, and tested. And, and that's, that's part of day-to-day life. As a believer, is it not true? You, you will note the maturity of a person by how positive and encouraged they, they remain in their life day to day. You ever, you're ever around somebody so in love with Jesus, so fulfilled in Christ, so filled up with Jesus that no matter how bad life seems to be, they're joyful because that is, that is a Calvary like joy. When the scripture says, for the joy that was set before, before Christ, he endured the cross. So a sign of maturity in verse 2 is encouragement. And, and I think with that would be that we are encouragers. We speak life into each other. We don't speak idle words. We don't slander. We don't gossip. We don't tear students down. But we're encouragers, and we expect them to then be encouraged and to encourage. The second thing he says, uh, continuing in verse 2, being knit together in love. So there's, there's, there's this, uh, the scripture talks about this repeatedly, the, the, the bond that we have in Christ, that, that the world will know us by our love for one another, that there's a, a unity that exists. A student ministry is exhibiting a great deal of maturity when there's a unity that, that exists inside of that student ministry. Many of you have had the opportunity to, to lead a group like that. And that's a very difficult task to not just disciple individuals, but to disciple the collective group and see unity within that group where they exhibit love towards one another. So, so knit together in love to reach, uh, um, to reach all the riches of full in, full assurance of understanding. So assurance of understanding. One of the things that a mature believer is going to have is assurance of their faith. The, the, the longer I'm in the faith, the more I grow. He later, he uses the phrase rooted and built up. The longer I grow in my faith, the more confident I am that what Christ began in me, he will complete. So one of the marks of a mature believer is going to be assurance. Assurance of who they are in Christ. One of the things all of us probably constantly have to deal with is students doubting their salvation. This happens all the time. I have conversations with kids all the time. 10,000 kids come through here next year. 
there's no tell, hundreds, if not thousands of one-on-one conversations, thousands will be had with students doubting their salvation. And this is where anecdotally what has happened in student ministry in the last three decades is we just get them to say a prayer and watch this in quotes, nail it down. Let me tell you something. What Christ has started and what Christ is going to complete doesn't need to be nailed down. What we need to do is labor to bring that student to maturity so that they can be confident of the work that Christ is doing in them. So a sign of maturity is assurance of understanding. Next, knowledge of the mystery of God, which he says is Christ. He says, uh, understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In in chapter 1, verse 19, he says uh, in in, in a very well-known passage of Scripture on the supremacy and the centrality of Christ, he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Christ, we've got the mystery of God revealed. The incarnation of Christ is the mystery of an unknowable God, a personally unknowable God revealed in full humanity. And so Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God. And then in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So wisdom and knowledge are evidences of a mature believer. Wisdom and knowledge, evidences of a true believer, not just, and, and, and wisdom and knowledge are, it's critical that they're always together, I think, because it's, it's very possible to know a lot and to be unwise, but someone who is wise will possess knowledge. And so, uh, wisdom and knowledge, uh, we're working to bring about wisdom and knowledge in the lives of those that we lead. And that's a sign of that maturity that Paul's talking about. So, so in other words, Peter says it like this. If you look uh, over in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says it this way in, in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, uh, uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight. So he gives us a couple of imperatives. We're to shepherd the flock of God and we're to exercise oversight. Shepherding is a very exhaustive and involved ministry endeavor. Very involved relationally, um, exercising oversight. But but when he refers to the flock, he refers to the flock as the flock of God. If all, one of the things that I've probably shared this with a lot of you, I, I share this often because it's a real motivating parameter for me in my ministry and in, in in personally how I approach ministry. Recognizing the ownership that God had, they're, they're Jesus's disciples, I'm a discipler, and, and, and contextually, contextually we could say, well, well, so-and-so is a disciple of so-and-so. Timothy was a disciple of Paul. Ultimately, they're Christ's disciples. So when, he, when Peter says they're, they're the flock of God, that prepositional phrase is, is, is assigning ownership clearly in Scripture to God. These are God's students. These are not our students. One of the things that, uh, that is a motivating parameter for me in terms of how I do ministry is Imagine, I have this imaginative thought of what if my, my teenagers, I have teenagers, what if, what if they're in a situation where, God forbid, but I'm dead and gone, I'm off the scene, and they're in some place needing pastoral leadership, pastoral care, and they go to that person in that position of leadership and mentorship in their life, how do I want that person to handle that situation? That's pretty motivating, that's, and that's pretty convicting for me. So when, I'm, when it's 12.30, 1 o'clock, 2 a.m., and I got a student that really needs to talk to me, that's pretty motivating and convicting because I'm tired. I've been here since 6 a.m. I, I want to go home. But I think about the nights that Christ stayed up 
Nicodemus came to him at night. You know, how long was that day? What had that looked like? And so it's the flock of God that we're shepherding. So the ownership is that they're his. Now watch this. First, first Peter chapter five. If you continue down in verse four, it says, and when the, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. See, Paul says in, in, in our, in our text in Colossians one, that we're going to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. And it's not without noting scripturally that that presentation has with it the promise of, watch this, reward. Are we, are we self-centered Christians to think about the fact that God will re- reward our faithfulness? No, not at all. Because that reward is nothing more than a deeper opportunity for us to worship him in his presence. That's what the reward's for. So I'm laboring now for the reward then that will enable me to worship him faithfully and more fully in that moment. So we're laboring for a reward, not, not so we can wear a frumpy, dumpy, goofy crown around. It's not the big idea, is it? The big idea is those, those, those elders, those kingly people in the book of Revelation cast in their crowns at the feet of Jesus. We labor for that reward. So in the end, there is a crown. So when we present everyone mature in Christ, it's important to understand that. Now, consider this. This is going to require much work. Much work. That list of things we just laid out, I mean, those are things that we're all still striving for in our own lives. None of us, like, we can't look at that list and say, I can't look at that list and say, well, I've hit, I'm over the hill, I'm, half, I'm over halfway done in life and way past that probably in ministry. And I like, okay, I've arrived. And from here on out, I'm going to hit the cruise. Control. We know that's not the case We're that is, those are all part of the work of sanctification that Christ is doing in us. The idea that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. So we want our students being conformed to the image of Christ. We're on the same journey. We're just further along in that journey. So it's going to take a lot of work. And we know that personally, because it takes a lot of work in our own lives. You work at your marriage, you work at work, you work at ministry, you work at how to spend your money faithfully and steward things well. You work at not being lazy, you work at being a light in darkness. We work at personal holiness, we work at facing our own doubts and fears and dreads and anxieties, and we work. We constantly work. So work begins for the discipler after conversion. Now, I'm saying all this with the clear biblical assumption and assuming that in the like-mindedness that exists in this room, that we are evangelistic in our ministries. But, but just to make sure we understand, in verse 28, he says, him we proclaim. So there is a proclamation of the gospel in our ministries. We're calling people to repent. We're calling people to faith in Jesus. We're calling people to the hope that is in Christ. And when they receive that, we're then beginning the work. A lot of y'all that know me know I love to hunt. I love to hunt. Uh, some, some guys were making fun of my shirt. They're like, that kind of looks girly. I'm like, well, but I'm wearing boots and camouflage. So like it, it, I can pull it off. Right. So I, I have to be careful if I'm not careful. I, I have, I realize every day I've got something camouflage on my body. Y'all I'm a knuckle dragger. I grew up in these mountains. I'm a knuckle dragger <laughs> and, and I have to, you got to remember your roots. And so, uh, I, but I love to hunt and I'll tell you, one of the most exciting things is for some of you, for, for you hipsters, this is going to seem weird. Um, killing something is invigorating. Knowing that you're going to eat it. 
I think God wired us that way. I think it's biblical. Subdue and have dominion over creation. That's what the book said. And so, so, and, 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 and rise, kill, and eat, right? So, um, so I hope I didn't freak some of you new folks out. But, uh, but we, like this past year, my family put up and consumed 15 white-tailed deer, one hog, and a half a side of beef. We're a big family, okay? Now, it's... <laughs> And we're meat eaters. Uh, I love to take my bow and my arrows, go out in the woods, and shoot something. It's fun. Like, I like the sport of it. But there is the ta- you You kill something three miles from the truck on the backside of that mountain right there. It's a three-hour job deboning that animal, putting it in a pack, and carrying 100 pounds of meat out of the mountains. Getting it home, processing it all. I hope I'm not grossing some of you guys out. But, you know, you, you illustrate where you live, you know, and it's kind of, but, but, uh, okay. And so, so like, I remember one time, uh, a buddy of mine who works here full time, he's here tonight. He's, he's our operations guy. We were on a, a goose and duck hunting trip in Saskatchewan and we were shooting, we were out there shooting and, and you're out in the middle of the sweet field and these birds are flying in and we're shooting them. Pow, pow, pow. Just, some of you guys are loving this illustration. Some of you are mortified right now. It's okay. Okay. So I'll be done in a second, but this, I want you to get this point. We're shooting, we're shooting, we're shooting. We shot so much that our guns were like clogging up with dirt and mud. Cause we're just scooping shells up. We're shooting at the end of that day between the team of us that were out there. I don't know how many birds we had, but we, and we had flown there in a buddy and the buddy's little six seater airplane. We're out on the side of this runway with flashlights. It's about 10 degrees. The snow's blowing and we're cleaning about a hundred ducks and geese. It was the worst night of my life. <laughs> and all I could think was, man, it was fun shooting those things, but I don't think it was this fun. <laughs> the work of discipleship is, is listen, is like that. We get excited about conversions. That was awesome. 73 people got saved. I thought there were 50 people there. We're Baptist. <laughs> I'm Baptist. I can make that joke. <laughs> I'm a good Liberty boy. Okay. So, so we, we get excited about conversions, but the work begins at that moment. And it is a labor that will last the, the, like the entire time that that student is in our ministry and oftentimes beyond that. It's a lifetime process. Paul says, those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And what happens between justification and glorification? The moment a person receives Christ and the moment that person stands before the Lord is the work of the discipler. The work of the pastor, the work of the small group leader, him we proclaim with the goal and the task of presenting them mature in Christ. That's what we're working for. So we want to see converts grow to their full potential. In fact, listen to what Paul says in the next very next book of the Bible. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 19. Listen to what he says. Oftentimes Paul would use, um, like, like the people he had seen come to faith and then discipled, they were like his, his joy and his presentation. They were his presentation. I'm going to give an account to God for my own salvation. Every student is going to give an, like a student is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for themselves. But we are going to give an account for how we lead and what we say and how we teach. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Listen to this. For, for what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? 
Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Can we say that about our students? You are our glory and our joy. You could stand before Christ and represent me and I would have nothing to be ashamed of. I'll be honest, most days I couldn't put a kid in front of Jesus and, and, and that's not going to happen. That's not how it goes down. But what if a student that seasoned and matured and was discipled in our ministry was to stand before the Lord and, and we were judged and gauged based on what that student had become? That there would be our presentation and our joy and the glory of God would, would rest on them because of the investment we had made in them. Very convicting. So we want to see these converts grow to their full potential. And to make it a reality, Paul gives us three simple, exhausting, lifelong tasks. Number one is to proclaim Christ. First thing, proclamation of the gospel. Listen, I don't care if you've been at a church a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, never stop proclaiming Christ. If we remove the gospel, if we remove the centrality of it, if we remove the centrality of the proclamation of it, there is nothing left to proclaim. The gospel endures. The gospel is the engine that drives. The gospel is the foundation that holds up our ministries. So we proclaim Christ. And we keep proclaiming Christ. Because is it not true that as a believer, if you know the Lord, you don't get sick of hearing somebody preach the gospel. In fact, the longer I know him, sweeter it is to hear those words. Sweeter it is to hear the proclamation of the gospel. So we proclaim Christ. Number two. There again in verse uh, 28 of chapter 1, warning or admonishing. You see, he says, uh, um, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now, this is, this is numbers 2 and 3, warning or admonishing and teaching. But here's what Paul does. Paul usually, uh, Paul always, in, in the scriptures, the way that the Lord would work through Paul is he would connect warning or admonishing with teaching. He would always do this. One of my favorite commentaries on the book of Colossians, a guy named Hendrickson says this, consider this. It should be stressed in this connection between admonishing and teaching that there was no wide gulf between Paul's admonishing and teaching. For him, abstract doctrine did not exist. Okay, let's put your thinking caps on. All right, put your thinking caps on. For him, abstract doctrine did not exist. Neither did Christians, uh, did Christian ethics suspended in midair. What's he saying? Just teaching doctrine because we love to read big, thick books and then throw weighty words around to our students. Like he didn't just do that. Just teach doctrine because he liked to, because some people love doctrine. Some of you like you'll cozy up with the big, thick, fat book on the on penal substitutionary atonement and drink six pots of coffee and, and take selfies of the whole scene and put it on social media. Ah, <laughs> oh, just having a good afternoon at home, you know, reading a little, reading a little Kistemacher and, and, and gotten my, you know, whatever coffee I like, I don't, Folgers is probably not what you're using in that scene, but, <laughs> but, but, but it's, but it's, and it's good to love doctrine. It's good to love doctrine. We're instructed to teach right doctrine. We're instructed to teach sound doctrine. So Paul taught doctrine. He did it. But it wasn't abstract and it wasn't suspended in midair. Likewise, not suspended in midair were ambiguous rules of Christianity. 
This is what I grew up with, man. That's why I walked away from the faith when I was 17 years old. I'm like, I'm, I'm out of here. See ya. It's way more fun to get drunk and look at bad pictures of sexual activity and party with these guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's what's happening when we're, when we're teaching legalistic Christianity. People are going, they're missing the doctrinal drive and the relational connection. You can't, in midair, suspend a bunch of do's and don'ts. So you can't admonish and warn without teaching. And you can't teach doctrine without driving the application of that doctrine home. It's both. So he proclaims Christ and he teaches and he admonishes and they come together. And what you're left with is discipleship. Let me finish the quote. Paul's teaching was done with a view to admonishing. His admonishing rooted in his teaching. Accordingly, the apostle never proclaimed a Christ who was a savior, but not an example, nor a Christ who was an example, but not a savior. Christianity for Paul was indeed a life, but a life based on doctrine. So if our ministries are going to be disciple rich, and if we're going to reach that goal of presenting mature believers, we're going to admonish and teach faithfully, which is going to require the hard work of laboring in our texts, laboring in our lessons, laboring in the word of God while pursuing personal holiness in our own life, but then doing the work of figuring out how do I apply this to the lives of my hearers and then know them relationally and invest in them and disciple them relationally. It's both. It's both things. So proclamation of the gospel, warning, and teaching, these are the things that he says will ultimately trigger the presentation of mature believers. Okay. Now, number two. So the first, the first big idea, number two is a much shorter idea. Don't worry. Purpose of disciple making. And was number one, number two, the drive and energy of disciple making the drive and the energy. What's the energy you need energy in your ministry. You exhausted some days, like every day. Some of you work a job, go to seminary and are a youth pastor. You are my hero and you are insane. Like that's crazy. And you'll look back one day and go, I don't know how I did it. Well, Christ did it in you. Christ did it through you. Right. But it's always exhausting. Isn't it funny? Think back to when you were in college. Those of you that went to college, think back how tired you thought you were. Isn't that funny? <laughs> college kid. Oh, so tired. What'd you do? I had finals. Oh, my kid threw poop on me last night from his crib. That's different. Is it not true that every stage of life, you look back at the previous stage, you're like, that wasn't so bad. But when you're in it, it's terrible. And so as like, when when you think about the energy and the drive in your ministry, like as we're making disciples, what's the thing that's driving us forward? It's, it's the thing that in this season, in this moment, life is difficult. There's going to be a point where we're going to laugh or cry or rejoice over where we're at right now. I mean, we can look back and see other seasons like that. And we can also see it playing out in those that we lead. So the drive and energy of disciple making is laid out in verse 29 of chapter one, three words. Toil, struggle, and energy. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Let's consider those three words. Toil um, is, is, uh, is a, it's an athletic term. It's an athletic term. We're just coming out of the Olympics. Isn't it interesting how someone will become an overnight household name once every four years for one or two cycles, and then nobody ever knows who they are again? I don't watch track and field. I don't watch gymnastics except once every four years. 
That's the way most of us are. That's the way most of us are because it's there and it's exciting. But I guarantee you, none of those athletes showed up after a four-year hiatus. They're like, no, no. Can you see some chubby dude, some, some diver that gained 60 pounds? And he shows up in his Speedo and he's like, well... I made the team last time around. Do, y- do, y'all, do y'all have like a 10-year thing? Like, like do I get preferential treatment because I was on the, the, the 08 team? No, dude. You're fat and, and hairy. <laughs> uh, you, you can't dive, you know? So, like, there's what happens is what we don't see before they're standing on the podium or in the starting blocks is literally a lifetime, not four years, a lifetime of preparation. It's, it's, it's toil. That's the word he's using toil, toil. And it's everything in you toil, commitment, early mornings, late nights, time in a word. Some of you kept pumping coffee just to get down here or up here from wherever you drove. Cause you had a long week. Same thing's going to happen tomorrow. Then you got responsibilities on Sunday and you're tired all the time. Labor for the joy of doing what God's called us to do. Toil. Listen, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard because the world is broken and we're torchbearers in a dark place. It ain't easy. It's supposed to be hard. Toil, struggle, energy. These are the words he uses. It's hard work. I think uh, it's, it's, it's so valuable to look at what there's two things that I want to look at that he says that I think contextualize this for me. One is in, in chapter two, verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, mislead. We're living in a day and age where if we don't do our job well, there's a strong possibility students will be misled either in the world by worldly thinking or by false teaching because it, it's abounding in the church or the church in quotes. Like, like one of the things we're working for when you're exhausted, remember that they will be misled and deluded by plausible arguments. What's a plausible argument? It makes sense to them. That makes sense. The transgender issue. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you, whether it's transgender or same sex issues in the last three, four years, you've watched your students who are now in your ministry. They are completely open to secular ideas that are anti like anti-biblical, like anti-scripture, completely opposed to the gospel. But they would never say I'm opposed to the gospel. It's everything's so plausible and it's packaged right and it's sold and marketed. And, and, and our, and we're, we're discipling and training students against that world system, not viewing it as the enemy, but saying they got to be able to stand firm in that. Like it's, it's, it's pretty insane. Some of the things that professing Christians are now entertaining as okay. Why? Cause they're deluded. They're misled. Now somebody's doing the misleading and that person's evil and wicked, but some people are simply misled. Why? Cause they haven't been led properly. They haven't been built up properly. The foundation's not in place that they need. So, so that, that should affect hard work on our part. I'm working against a world system. You feel like you're competing against the world. Well, you are. You are. And the, the, the good news is what we're competing with is enough. Namely, Jesus. It's enough. 
you got to believe that if you give your students Christ, we got to believe, I got to believe that if I give my students Christ and they get Christ and he gets them, that that will be enough to sustain them in whatever wave comes next as, as our society spirals downward, that they'll, they'll, cause let's be honest when we're off the scene and dead and gone, what, what generation is going to be behind us? What are they going to be left to deal with? We've got to make disciples. The second thing is in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles, uh, spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Again, same thing. The idea that worldly philosophy, worldly deceit, principles, there's a demonic influence, spiritual activity that are coming against our students. They are targeted when they profess Christ, man. They are the young believer that is targeted by the enemy. So that should motivate us to do this hard work, this toil, this struggle, this energy. So we have work to do, work to do. Two things that are really helpful, I think, as an aside. One, having, uh, I mean, how, the way I illustrated this at church recently, uh, like, you know what a pressure valve is. Like, we run, we run river trips here. One of the things we do here is whitewater raft. And we use self-bailing boats. And those boats inflate. And when they're sitting in the sun, what happens? They swell. Well, there's release valves on those boats that when the pressure gets too great, it, it lets pressure off so that it doesn't pop, doesn't burst. Okay. We need release valves in our lives. This could be a hobby. Some people are like, I ain't got time for hobbies. You, you better have time for something to relieve pressure. Don't, don't feel ashamed of that. Now don't like your hobby shouldn't become your life. You know, I saw a funny, uh, a guy was talking recently about how funny it is when people are like, you know, I'm doing this hobby so I can reach people with the gospel. And you're like, okay, are you really, or do you just really like your hobby? And we, we got to keep that in check, but we like, there needs to be a release valve. The other thing we need that's critical that I think a lot of people in ministry in our experience here struggle with and don't have. And that would be another physical example would be, uh, like a, you know what a ground rod is a lightning rod. So when you're the, the electricity that comes into your home is grounded in the event that lightning hits. Okay. So that electricity is grounded so that when the storm comes, lightning hits, power goes out, your house doesn't blow up and burn down. Okay. It's ground. That ground rod is deep about that much sticking out of the ground, but it's about six feet deep. Okay. It's driven deep. Ground rods are critical in our lives. And what ground rods look like are relationships with people who are not in the same exact trench, but can give us fresh air and an objective idea, but who are like-minded with us in ministry. That's what we have this week. Ground rods, connectivity, relationships with people on the outside of your ministry. That's critical. So pressure valves, ground rods, uh, things that you can do to unplug and cause it's hard work and you're feeling the weight of it and you need to be able to step out of it. Okay. So how, how do we do all of that and maintain our composure and our advancing, uh, of, of ministry in the gospel? Verse 29, after he says all those things, he says that he powerfully works in us. Jesus powerfully working in you. The good news is on your worst day, Christ is, he doesn't have a bad day. He doesn't take a day off. He's not like, oh man, you have totally done it this time. I don't know. We, how will we, what have you gotten us into? You said what while you were preaching? That is not what I wrote. Where did you get that? I'm looking. I'm trying to figure out what, where did you come up with that? I didn't say it. Tell them I did not say that. You're putting words in my, you know, have you ever had that happen where you're like, you look back and you're like, I preached that. 
God is so gracious. Sometimes he corks their ears, you know, it's like, so, so like he's working in us. He doesn't have an off day. You mess up. You give bad counsel. You, cause you're not perfect. You're not Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm not Jesus. He's still powerfully working in us. And the motivating thing is Christ is working in us and we're then called to work in Christ. And that's how we move forward. That's the driving energy of disciple making. So Christ works, I work, and the prize is mature disciples who can defend their faith, stand against a flood of agnostic, atheistic, Darwinian, secularist worldviews. They're going to hit them right in the mouth when they go to public school or off to college or listen to their favorite artist in an interview. And they'll, they'll stand firm with assurance with wisdom and knowledge, with the love of God's word, and we'll give them what they need to, to, to go through life and continue on this trajectory. Amen? Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I really do. I really, really thank you for your word. The, the calling that you place on our lives is so valuable, um, and, and it's, it's a high calling, it's, it's, but it's your calling and we're grateful for it. And I thank you that you give us your word so that we don't have to figure this out on our own. So that we don't have to respond um, respond to the world in our own wisdom. Respond to situations and circumstances with our own ideas. But we simply lean on your word, stand on your word, press into your word. And labor to present mature believers to you. One day we'll do that. I pray you'd bless our time here. We'd encourage one another, strengthen one another. And that we would honor you with our fellowship in Jesus' name.